Welcome to an audio stream from San Marino Community Church, featuring our own pastoral staff and various guest speakers. Good morning. If you have a Bible or your bulletin, you can turn to Exodus chapter 16. I have been told that um, you're spending a few weeks through some of these Exodus passages, and this is a uh, just a, f- a fascinating text for the life of faith. This is uh, Exodus 16. We'll start read start reading in uh, in verse two. And the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the people of Israel said to them, Would that we have died in the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt, when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full. For you have brought us out into the wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am about to rain bread from heaven for you. And the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day, that I might test them whether they will walk in my law or not. And on the sixth day, when they prepare what they will bring in, it will be twice as much as they gather daily. So Moses and Aaron said to all the people of Israel, At evening you shall know that it was the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And in the morning you shall see the glory of the Lord, because he has heard your grumbling against the Lord. For what we are, that you grumble against us. And Moses said, when the Lord gives you in the evening meat to eat, and in the morning bread to the full, because the Lord has heard your grumbling, that you grumble against him, what are we? Your grumbling is not against us, but against the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, say to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, come near before the Lord, for he has heard your grumbling. And as soon as Aaron spoke to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, they looked toward the wilderness, and behold... The glory of the Lord appeared in the cloud, and the Lord said to Moses, I have heard the grumbling of the people of Israel. Say to them, at twilight you shall eat meat, and in the morning you shall be filled with bread. Then you shall know that I am the Lord your God. In the evening quail came up and covered the camp, and in the morning dew lay around the camp. And when the dew had gone up, there was on the face of the wilderness a fine flake-like thing, fine as frost on the ground. And when the people of Israel saw it, they said to one another, What is it? For they did not know what it was. And Moses said to them, It is the bread that the Lord has given you to eat. This is God's word. So what does faith look like? Nathaniel Hawthorne once said about Herman Melville's skepticism, he said, He can neither believe nor be comfortable in his unbelief. Therefore, he never believed. And it's an ancient problem, but it's also a modern one for us as well, because I think often in life, faith feels something that we, that we want to run away from or that it's difficult to embrace because it either feels like you have to be all in or all out. And we sort of say it modernly, maybe more practically to one another by saying, I'm not really religious, but I find myself to be very spiritual. Because it feels like the practice of faith and the activity of faith is either something you're all in 
or you're all out on. But this text, I think, is so helpful for us in reflecting on what is actually the pattern in the life of faith for dealing with that issue. Do you ever feel like this personally? Where it feels like today I can trust Jesus with everything. And next week he feels like it's the most silly concept I've ever conceived in the world. And who could ever follow that? Two things I think that will tremendously help us in this text at unfolding sort of what is actually the pattern, the biblical pattern of faith for such a problem. One, let's look at the grumble. And two, the bread. Just two very simple things in this text. One, the grumble. And two, the bread. First, uh, look at the grumble. It says in verse 2, they grumbled. And the Hebrew word there is, is really an abiding complaint. And it says it ten times through this passage that they grumbled, that they grumbled, that the Lord heard their grumbling, the Lord responded to their grumbling. Now, um, here's what uh, this grumble looks like. Look in verse 3. It says this, what would, the, would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full, for you have brought us out in the wilderness to kill the whole assembly with hunger. That they're looking back and saying, well, it would have been better if we just stayed in Israel. I love it in uh, Numbers 11.5 when it says, we remember the fish of Egypt. Now this is fascinating. These are people who are sitting out in the wilderness having just been delivered and seen the miracles of God, and they're saying to one another, hey, do you remember when we were in Egypt? And yeah, they were beating us, and yeah, they were taking our children away, and we were starving. We had no homes. We had no identity. But the fish was good. You remember that fish? How about that fish? And that's the conversation they're having, because the mirage of, the, the mirage of idolatry will lead them to a place of grumbling. And it's a fascinating grumble because it comes right on the heels of Exodus 14 and 15. If you look at those texts, what had happened to the Israelites is that they're on the run being delivered by God from the Egyptians. And Pharaoh is coming after them. And the Lord splits the Red Sea. And so while Neil Armstrong is the first person to ever walk on the moon, these people are the first ones to ever walk on the floor of the ocean. They see and taste immediately God's deliverance. They see his goodness to them. And then in Exodus 15, they write a poem about it. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? You stretched out your right hand. The earth swallowed them. They're singing all of his praises. They're acknowledging his goodness, his deliverance, his faithfulness to them. Then they end in the wilderness, and they immediately say, do you remember that fish? That would have been better. And here's what we learn. In the life of faith, there is a pattern that is marked by a wave. That truly in the life of faith, what it is, is it is a wave of height to low. From the height of belief to the low of doubt. God, I love you. God, I'm not sure you're good. God, you are faithful. God, you have abandoned me. And it's not a crisis. This text is showing you this is the life of faith. You see, it's become a crisis for us in the church because we give people no room to explore this or express this, that there are seasons in our life, there are moments in our life 
where you look at all the circumstances, you look at all the, pa- the things going on in and around your life, and the circumstances are convincing you and telling you, God is not faithful. God is not good. And we identify those moments and point to them in, in such places and think, do I really believe this? Did I ever really believe this? And it's not a crisis. This is the pattern of faith from the height of jubilation to the mire of complaint. And if we don't acknowledge that this is the life of faith, that this is the biblical pattern we give, here's what we do. We perpetuate a culture of fakeness. You know what I mean? Where everybody comes into church or everybody comes into a community like this and says, "Uh, how are you doing? I'm doing good. How are you doing? Good. 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 Great. Wonderful. And it's isolating. And it's lonely because there are absolute seasons where you're not good. And we've not created room in the church to be able to say, you know what, today I want to go back to Egypt. Today I miss the fish. Today I want to go back. And not only does it create a fake culture, it also isolates and makes people want to withdraw because if you've ever been in that moment, sometimes you walk into the church and say, maybe I don't belong here because I can't fit in with all these happy, smiley people because my life is a mess. And what you begin to do is you begin to expect so little of God until you get a little of him. And then there's nothing left. You see, the valleys are not indicative of how good God is or whether or not you believe. The valleys are meant to be valleys of vision. And the Bible doesn't condone it and it doesn't encourage it, but it identifies it as part of the pattern of faith. You see, if you, if you really want to believe for a lifetime, you have to learn to live with your questions and not shove them down and not throw them in the closet and not isolate those people who have those questions, but live with the moments to say, maybe Egypt was better. Maybe following Jesus and sacrifice is the dumbest thing I've ever decided to do in life. If you're not ever asking that question, you're not being honest about life and faith together. I have a friend who one time uh, told me on a Saturday morning, he had become uh, convinced, I'm going to get up and I'm going to take one of my daughters to go serve in a homeless shelter. We're going to go, and I'm going to go spend my entire Saturday. I'm not going to watch football. Uh, I, I just have felt really compelled and called by Jesus to go do this. And so he said on the way to go spend their Saturday serving. And he said, this was the height of me just going, life is about giving to Jesus. It's not about me. On the way there, he stopped at like a, a McDonald's to get some breakfast with her. And they're walking into the McDonald's. And he said sort of an older couple was walking out at the same time, and he didn't see them. And so he uh, opens the door and almost runs into the sweet old lady. And the husband of the sweet old lady said, you jerk. And my friend, now listen, he's on the way to go give his whole day away to just serving people who will never give him anything back. He turns to them in a tripping moment and says, go to hell. And that's the same morning where he's going, 
for the glory of God, for the love of Jesus, to give it all away, and turns in a moment and says something like that. Listen, is that faith? And I'm telling you, what this text says is that's faith. It is a wave to learn to live with. And here's why it's so crucial for us to get this and to live with this, because you have to know where to put your confidence in life and faith. And what you need to do more than anything is get it outside of yourself and get it outside of your own concrete belief. And this is so hard today because we've been told for years in schools and society, be true to yourself. Just be true to yourself. But here's my question with that statement. Which self? The high or the low? The Jesus I love you or the Jesus you're not really there? The I want this or I want that? Which self am I supposed to be true to? You see, but what the life of faith must be built in is something outside of you. Have you ever read the Heidelberg Catechism? It's such a helpful text. The first one says, the first question says, what is your only comfort in life? And it says, my only comfort in life is that I am not my own, but that I am bought with a price by Jesus Christ. Theologian Karl Barth would say that this is how you begin to stand on your feet again throughout the wave of faith, is that you begin to realize there will be seasons of here and there. It will be high. It will be low, but you are not your own. And your comfort is that someone else owned you, someone else purchased you, and that is the bedrock of faith. But you have to identify the grumble. Secondly, in this text, so helpful for faith, is the presence of bread. You see, for this wave of faith, you have to be weaned off the comfort and trust in yourself. You have to be pulled away uh, from the comfort of looking to yourself. And the only place that this could happen is the wilderness. Now, now what's the wilderness? Well, not to be too uh, repetitive or too explanatory, but the wilderness simply is just a place where there are no circumstances that are beneficial to you in life, where you're sort of looking around and it feels like nothing is going well. There's nothing I can depend on right now in my life. I can, have you ever had this where it feels like nothing's going right right now? Like I want one thing to cling on to. I want one thing to grab onto to make me feel stable, to make me feel peaceful, to make me feel happy. When nothing's going right, that's the wilderness. And that's the only place, truly, that you can be weaned off the comfort of yourself. But I want here's what's so fascinating about this wilderness. How did the, the Israelites get into the wilderness? God led them there. It was God himself who took them from the Red Sea into the wilderness immediately after this. And so it's a mark not of his punishment, not of his unfaithfulness, but it's the presence of his love. And my goodness, how does this contradict our modern conception of how God is? Where we equate God's deliverance and his faithfulness to us always by improving our circumstances. Don't we do this? Where we only look at God's goodness to us when, I got the promotion. She got into college that she wanted to get into. 
Everything works out, and we think, this is God's goodness. But look, it's God's goodness to the Israelites here that takes them not into a paradise, but into the wilderness to weed them off of the comfort of themselves. Because what proved true for Israel and what proves true for you and I is that it's harder to get the slavery out of Israel than it is to get Israel out of slavery. You see, our our heart is so prone to always keep going back to, but the fish, but the fish, and weaning us off that only happens in the presence of the wilderness. But in the wilderness, God is so good that he gives us bread. And here's the second lesson with with the pattern of faith being a wave is the law of repetition. Listen, that faith has to be a repetition. Look, here's the key phrase. Look in verse 12. This is what Moses says, or the Lord says, I have heard the grumbling of the people. Say to them, at twilight you shall eat meat, and in the morning you shall be filled with bread. Then you shall know that I am the Lord your God. Listen, then you shall know, that you shall know. This is a pattern through the whole book of Exodus. God appears in the burning bush to Moses and says, that you may know that I am the creator of all things I have appeared. And with every plague, it's that you may know, that they will know, that someone will know. And so what the bread is, the bread is a lesson that God will give to these people in order to wean them off the comfort of themselves and to begin to depend daily, daily on him. We didn't read it, but in verse 19 it says that they may gather the daily portion that is needed. See, it was only, only for the day. They could only go out and get the bread for the day. If they got it for more than a day, then it would turn to mold. It would be ruined. Why? Because God wanted them each day to begin again. It was, a, it was not just a, a tease. It was not just something to play with their minds or their hearts. It was a lesson to teach them something truly profound, that each morning we begin again. That each morning we are to begin to deal with the wave of faith this way. Lord, I need you. See, this was the the original Wonder Bread. It had a strict 24-hour expiration date. And the only way to work through that is to come into the confidence that despite all the circumstances, God will provide in the morning. And he did this for 40 years. 40 years. If you do the calculations, it's over 14,000 morning lessons that God will provide, that God will be good. You see, because if in the life of faith, when you have the high and when you have the low, and when you believe, and when when you want to walk away, that is not dealt with, nor is it learned in a book or in one sermon, or in one song. It is only a reality that is drilled into your soul morning after morning after morning after morning. There's humor, there's humor about this. Because looking at verse 15, it says, When the people of Israel saw it, they said to one another, What is it? For they did not know what it was. They looked at one another and said, What is it? And here, here's what's humorous about that. The The Hebrew, phonetically, for what is it, is spelled out this way, manna. They didn't know what it was, so they just said, what is it? 
what it is. What, it, what is this? And, he, and literally in the Hebrew, manna, what it is. Because they, didn't, they did not in their hearts, like you and I, understand God's provision and his graciousness to us. See, our self-reliant hearts still don't understand this. And so what it had to be for 40 years, 14,000 lessons, what is this? Until finally they are able to say, this is God's goodness. You see, God will provide for you, and he will meet you where you are in his provision, in his love, in his sovereignty, in his graciousness to us. But yet we go to sleep at night anxious. We wake up in the morning with the burden of the world. And the removal of that burden, the ability to to sleep peacefully, to enjoy life with thanksgiving, is not going to be weaned out on you this weekend or next week. But it must be morning after morning after morning that you might believe. But here's the beautiful part about this lesson. Is that it's not as though learning to begin the pattern of faith begins with you, all right, trying harder. And make sure you get this and make sure you go apply this to your life. Because look what it says in verse 7. It says, and in the morning you shall see the glory of the Lord because he has heard your grumbling against the Lord. You see, here's the lesson that they got that, that you and I need. Is that the pattern of repetition did not just begin with the Israelites' earnestness. Nor did it begin with their hearts being in the right place. But it began each morning the same way you and I begin most mornings, with grumbling. And it is God's response not to their faithfulness, not to their earnestness, but to their grumbling that he gives them provision. It's in their complaint that he comes to them each time and says, I am still the same. I will still be your God. Look, this is, this is the beauty of the gospel. You can begin every morning of your life in complaint, in grumbling, in frustration, and the living God will still meet you each morning going, here is bread for the day. My love never changes. My kindness never goes away. My forgiveness and my steadfast love will be with you forever. And you begin each day, listen, not with your faithfulness, not with your earnestness, but with his. And that sounds so foreign to us. We say, what, what is it? It's God's goodness. Now, we don't have daily bread that falls from heaven, but we have something better. Because there was someone many years later who came along and they said, who is that? Who are you? And Jesus said, I am the bread of life. In John 6, he said this, Truly, truly, I say to you, for it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not ever hunger. See, God has given us the true bread of heaven on a Friday afternoon where a hungry man cried out, why, my God, my God, have you forsaken me? 
And he said that I might feed my grumbling people forever. See, the strength of your wobbly faith, of the wave of this, is needs to daily know and needs to be grounded not in you trying harder, not in you knowing more, but that you have a bread that is forever given to you and is available whether you are hungry or not, whether you feel like having it or not ever feeling like having it. It's still always there, and you need on a daily basis to know, even in the midst of my rebellion, even in the midst of my lack of caring, and the seasons may last longer than days, weeks, maybe even a year, his bread in Jesus is still faithful and offered for you. Let's apply this real quick and be done. Think of it, think of this like exercise. Now, you're not an athlete just because you go to the gym. But if you never go to the gym, it's hard to call yourself an athlete. And in the same way, just because you begin to practice daily bread, going to God each morning, believing in the midst of his goodness despite your lack of, your lack of faith, just because you do that does not make you a Christian. But if you never do that, it's really hard to walk and live the Christian life. And th- think of this like exercise still. You know, if you do this one time, it's not going to make you feel better. It's not going to change everything. In the same way, going to the gym one time is not going to suddenly transform your figure. But if you never go for a year, if you never do it for six months, if you never do anything for eight months, sure enough, you're going to look and feel different. And in the same way, if we never go to God looking for daily bread, sure enough, our anxiety and our troubled hearts will grow and get lazy and we'll have longer seasons of this. But if you go and you pursue and you seek daily bread and you seek to taste his faithfulness each morning, a year from now, I promise you, in a regular pattern of faith, you will will be less anxious. And if, if you want to be a thankful person, if you want to be free from worry, begin to take daily bread. I'll tell you the story of somebody who did and what it looked like. One of the great theologians we've had of the church is a guy named Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He was a German pastor who stood up against the Nazi regime. And when he was towards the end of his life, uh, and he knew that the last assassination attempt on Hitler's life had failed, that he was soon to be executed. And what one author said this on his way to his execution. Bonhoeffer possessed the calm of the mystic from the experience of the ultimate. As his execution drew near, he amanted calm, was cheerful, and ready to respond to a joke, and apparently carefree. Look, in the, you're not going to have a wilderness more intense than on the way to your execution. And the wave of faith absolutely would be totally understandable there. But don't you want, in the midst of your life, when all the wildernesses are happening because if something happened to your children or something's happening in your marriage or something's happening at work, don't you want a life that is emanted by calm? And that even in those moments, you're almost ready to respond to a joke. You know what Exodus 16 is saying? It's saying, that could be you. 
that could be you if you will go to the Lord at daily bread to deal with your pattern of faith. Because Jesus is there. He is your bread of life. And he has been given to us that you may take him. Let me pray for us. Lord, if we want to be honest about life, we have to know that there is a wave of faith. But yet you have been faithful and good to us and kind to us to give us Jesus who will last forever, who will meet us in our staleness, who will meet us in our frustration with open arms and kind love. Lord, when we feel distant from you, would you remind us that you never grow distant from us and that you are our only comfort in life and that we can stand on our wobbly knees of faith, not in ourselves, but in Christ alone. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.